Hello, I'm Linda Huey, and this is Meet the Doctors, the show that lets you hear what doctors have to say about their lives, their work, their passions, and what they foresee for the future. Today's guest is spine surgeon Dr. Robert Watkins IV, co-director of the Marina Spine Center in Los Angeles. This episode of Meet the Doctors is brought to you by Complete PT Pool and Land Physical Therapy. Whether you're trying to prevent knee surgery or recovering from shoulder, hip, or back pain, Complete PT offers you the most advanced pool therapy in combination with traditional land therapy. You don't need to know how to swim or even get your hair wet. The 92-degree saltwater pool soothes joints and muscles and helps reduce pain immediately. Visit CompletePT.com. That's CompletePT.com. Now let's meet orthopedic spine surgeon, Dr. Watkins. We're here today in Marina Del Rey with Robert Watkins IV, who is the co-director of the Marina Spine Center. Welcome to Meet the Doctors. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. I've been knowing the name Robert Watkins for a long time. I know that you guys are known for helping the Dodgers, the Clippers, and the Rams, but I want to start back from the beginning. Now, you said you went to South Pasadena High School, but were you born here in L.A.? I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, which I know (laughs) you can't tell from my skin tone. I'm a little pale (laughs) for a Hawaiian, but uh, my dad was actually in the military, uh, stationed at Tripler Hospital, the big pink hospital on the hill in Honolulu. I was born there. And uh, we lived there until I was two and a half and then moved to South Pass. And I grew up in South Pass and went to high school there and everything. And uh, then ended up going to Vanderbilt for college in Tennessee and Nashville. My dad's actually from Memphis and my mom's from Dallas. And so a lot of people, a lot of patients I meet, especially actors and actresses, ask if I'm from the South. Yeah, because there's a slight Southern accent with you, but a real Southern accent for your dad. Exactly. I have a little bit of a twang. And I grew up saying like cement instead of cement and some body instead of just even here in L.A. How about pie? Yeah, exactly. I always always had a little bit. But then when I went to Vanderbilt, it came out more. And one of my best friends who's from Nashville lives out here now. And I work with my dad. You know, we've operated together every Tuesday and Thursday for 16 years. And so I sound more like him. But he also copies me. He sounds like me. So the uh, <laughs> It goes in a circle, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so he grew up in Memphis, I was reading. So that, yeah. that's... That explains the Southern accents. Yeah. How did you choose Vanderbilt? You want to go back to the state your dad came from? Yeah, it was a combination of things. One, there's no doubt my dad said Vandy was one of the schools he could never get into. So the fact I got in, it was like, well, I guess I got to go, you know, <laughs> carry on the improve the family legacy, you know, always trying to make progress. I bet your dad enjoyed the fact you were going back to his state. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. he loved it. And uh, it was great. And Nashville's, you know, a totally different town than Memphis. He's from Memphis, which is more blues and barbecue mm-hmm. and gritty. Mm-hmm. And Nashville's more country music. Yep. And the uh, But Nashville's a great town. I mean, I had a, I'll tell you when I first got there, it was a culture shock. And I didn't quite anticipate that. I didn't quite realize growing up in L.A. and in South Pasadena how open-minded people are out here in L.A. Growing up here, you just kind of take it for granted. You just think everybody's like that. And there's no question going back to to into the South was a real culture shock that I didn't quite anticipate as far as just – 
people are more set in their ways. They kind of know how life is. They're happy with it, and they don't necessarily challenge everything. And I'm kind of a challenger, especially with thoughts. And I ended up majoring in philosophy when I was there. Uh, yeah. So why did you choose philosophy? Because of that, what you ran into there? Yeah. Well, it was also, that's just my, I'm an inquisitive person. Mm-hmm. I'm very math and science and logically based. And and then to when I first took my first logic class, the fact that there were rules to this discussion. It wasn't just a free-for-all whose opinion is best. It's like, no, there are actually rules that are logical, and you write them out, and they make sense. And I've always had a very good sense. Well, all my friends will tell you I argue, that I've argued my whole life. They all thought I was going to be a lawyer because I always I, – I won every argument. I, I say I won. Now, they may debate that. <laughs> but I, I won a lot of arguments when we were young over sports. I'd win every argument in sports. You know, anyway, some controversy on the basketball court, and they'd – I'd talk so much they'd finally go fine. Just take the point, <laughs> shut up, and play again. The uh, but uh, but you Wait, know. So you play basketball and water polo. What else? Basketball, water polo, football. Uh, I grew up playing football. I, I was the main organizer of sports growing up as a kid. You know, I was with always, your family or with the with, neighborhood. Or? In the neighborhood. Uh-huh. And those were the days when you just got a bunch of kids on your block to go to the park and yeah. play. So yeah, it was great. So kind of growing up on sports and and having all that ideology. But philosophy, I loved. I love the the free flow of ideas, but the challenging of ideas, and also reading, you know, Descartes and Aristotle and John Locke and all mm-hmm. all these minds throughout the years, and realizing that people's rational decision making is so strong and has been so tight for so long that you couldn't necessarily poke holes in their arguments, but they all said different things, and yeah. no one was necessarily right. And that kind of taught me that, you know, it's more important to be kind in how you treat people than it is to be right. And I realized that being right all the time is really annoying. Who wants to hang out with somebody who's right all the time? And so I kind of, that's part of the reason why I think I didn't become a, a lawyer is because I didn't want to be too obnoxious and just walk around being right all the time, but try and shift my focus more into what kind of person do I want to be? And how do I want to live my life on a daily basis rather than have some theory as to what I think is right? Well, then in one of the podcasts, because I know you have a podcast and we'll get to that, mm-hmm. I was hearing you say that you were surprised when your dad told you when you agreed, you decided to be a doctor a little bit yeah. later in life. You were kind of a reluctant yeah. doctor, yeah. but he he told you you should, he didn't just say because you're smart. It was yeah. because you were empathetic yeah. and you said, I didn't know that that was a quality I could turn <laughs> right. into a career. Right. That's so true. You know. It's a fascinating process. I definitely didn't just, you know, I didn't uh, say, oh, I'm going to be a doctor my whole life. My dad did, and I have a little sister named Claire who's a cardiothoracic surgeon up at Stanford, and she always wanted to be a doctor, and now she is. And for me, it wasn't like that. For me, I looked at different jobs, and I said, and my personality, it really is a lot of self-reflection. What kind of person am I? How am I going to get fulfilled in life? And there's a couple things that I realized I needed, especially when I was in college. I realized I need to be challenged. Mm-hmm. I respond well to a challenge. If my back's up against the wall and I got to step up and be challenged, that's when I'm at my best. Whereas if things are too easy, I get too lackadaisical mm-hmm. and lose interest. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I realized being a doctor, well, you're going to be challenged all the time, especially being a surgeon, spine much less a spine surgeon. surgeon. Yes. You know, yeah, you want to be challenged? Okay. Every day you wake up and walk in that operating room, it's a whole new challenge. You can never take it for granted. So that was one of it. I realized I needed to be challenged. I was better if I was challenged. And the other part, too, is I just never wanted to get bored. You know, I never <laughs> wanted to have a job where I woke up when I was 50 and said, what was the point of my life? You know, I want a job that I'm going to feel be fulfilled on a regular basis. And so I kind of looked at being a doctor as, 
you get to accomplish these goals as an individual, make good grades, be successful, take on all these challenges, learn new skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, learning surgery is learning a whole sport and it takes you 10 to 20 years to learn how to do it, you know, and this investment you put into it and the repetition and the practice. I'm a pretty hardworking person. So I knew that, and and sport based, I knew that that kind of related to me. But then the, at the other part, you accomplish all these things as an individual. And yet at the end of the day, you're helping people. Every single day, the reason why you're doing this is the ultimate win-win. The better you get at it, the more you help people. And and so I, I kind of looked at it. I looked at my dad's job and said, that's a pretty cool job to fulfill all those things, what most human beings want out of life. You really get to check those boxes. And so, and then part of it was just the challenge. Well, can I get into medical school? Can I get into orthopedic residency? Can I become a spine surgeon? So that challenge along the way was something I always enjoyed and took on and, and was never sure that I'd be able to do it. And and like I said, my dad was so good about never influencing me. He never said a word to me about being a doctor, being a surgeon, being a spine surgeon, never said a word because he was smart enough to know that if I was going to make that choice, I had to make it for me. Yes. If I was making it for him, I wouldn't last. It'd be a horrible existence. And he So he never said a word. But what's interesting about my dad, same thing with my little sister, who's the surgeon, he so much never says a word that you almost think he doesn't think you can do it. Oh. And, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of like, well, you know, does he think I, you know, and so, but, but, but he's, he was so good about that of really, you gotta, you gotta prove it to yourself. Did he you, ever invite you into not, maybe not into the surgery, but into I never the thought about it. I uh-huh. never even considered it until I had a girlfriend in college, Sarah, and she was a, gr- a great woman and um, she was a pre-med. And I became pre-med and she came out to visit one spring break and she said, let's go watch your dad operate. I never even thought about it. It never <laughs> ran across my mind to go go to work with my dad. You know, it was like it was his work. And so the first surgery I ever watched was because she wanted to watch. Yes. And, it, and it was just one of those things. So a lot of people just assume that because I'm my father's son. And even when I started medical school, everybody thought I knew medicine. You know, they thought, oh, you're, you know, they knew my dad and they're like, well, you must know, certainly, you know, this and this, and you know, about- I studied philosophy. Yeah, I was like, exactly. <laughs> I can tell you about the theory behind the, you know, health and human existence, but actual medical terms. I didn't know any medicine before I started medical school. At USC, right? Correct. At USC. That's uh-huh. right. And how did you choose USC? USC. I was, I was ready to come home to LA. My brother, who's Andy, was in Japan. He came back to LA to go to law school. And so we both kind of came back to L.A. and we lived together. I lived with my older brother in oh, nice. the first couple of years of medical school. And um, so I came back to L.A. I was ready to come back to California. I mean, I love traveling the world. I've lived in Mexico for six weeks and speak Spanish decently well, at least I used to. Worked in a hospital down there, uh, lived in Chile for six weeks, uh, lived in England for a year training. So I, I love traveling, going all over the world and all over the country but ultimately, I love Los Angeles. Yes. I mean, you know, it's like, I'm so, with you. You're right. <laughs> I love to go. I love to, I've traveled and taught on all six continents, but yeah. I love it when I landed LA. I know. It's the greatest place to come home to. The, uh, and yeah. So coming back to, coming back is great. And even just USC has such a great reputation of being a clinical physician, you know, where learning how to take care of people. I mean, USC medical school, your first year as a medical student. They have an introduction to clinical medicine. You go and interview patients at County Hospital mm. your first week of medical There's school. There's a wake-up call, huh? You know, and one of the greatest lessons I learned from that is I was so nervous about going and talking to this patient. So you got a sick person at County Hospital, you know, packed in with five other people in a room. That's how yeah. it used to be. Five people in a room, they're sick. And I was so nervous because I thought, 
I'm going to be disturbing this person. Why do they want this stupid medical student who doesn't know anything about medicine to show up and to interrupt them and to talk to them and get their history and physical, do all this other kind of stuff when I have nothing to offer them? I don't know anything about medicine. I can't offer them treatment. I can't even offer them advice. The, uh, and so I was so nervous about, you know, just interrupting this person and imposing on them, having to do this thing. And the greatest thing I learned is in talking to somebody, for one thing, just by talking to them, these people never wanted me to leave. Never want, you know, because no one ever talks to them. So they're laying there in the bed all day and the hot doctors are so busy. You know, they're running around and the nurses are overwhelmed and busy. It's like, so for, some, for a human being to come and sit down and talk to them. And listen to them. And listen to them yes. and ask them questions. Yes. And I didn't have an agenda because I didn't know anything. <laughs> so I was just a listener and, yeah. and to help kind of, and I was interested. I mean, how do people end up at County Hospital in Los Angeles? from all over the country and all over the world, fascinating stories about how they get wow. there. Yeah. And so I had the, I had the best experience of, of that human connection, but also learning that I was providing them a service and a gift and, and offering something just by being there, just yep. the human presence and listening to them. And so and you represented the doctor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't have my white coat. Yes. So it's like, yes. I looked, yes. looked I'll tell you one other thing I learned from that, which is great for me was then as you start to have to figure out how to take a history so then you've got to check your boxes, family history, past social history, met surgical history. You learn how to do it in a conversational style where you're not just sitting there reading off, okay, do you have any surgicals? Do you have any? You realize as you talk to people, they give you openings and they give you paths mm -hmm. where you start talking, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Why are you here? Well, I'm here and my dad this. And then you say, well, tell me about your dad. Did he have any? You know, and they give you these openings that then yes. you can take. And it was so beautiful to develop a conversation with somebody where you're getting all the information you need, but you're letting them direct the conversation in many ways and helping them down the path. And I thought that USC did such a fantastic job of starting with the human connection and then slowly introducing the medical parts and so that you learn how to do it and still have an authentic human interaction where it's not just cookie cutter and, and stereotypical. So you did your residency there. Yeah. yeah. I did four years of medical school. Then I spent five years and did my orthopedic residency still at USC. So I didn't leave. I stayed there for nine years at County Hospital, and it was great. I mean, I formed so many great relationships. I was the student body president for two years at USC at the medical school. The medical school has a student body president. Yeah, didn't it, know that. There's two co-presidents, and uh, and that was great. I met you know all the department chairs. I, I found out how a huge organization of people worked, and I'm not and I'm not. I hate going to meetings and sitting through these politically correct meetings where nobody speaks up and everybody just, you know, uh, this institutional type of mm -hmm. thinking, you know, most surgeons have difficulty in that type of environment because we just want to fix things. Yeah. We just want to get in there and do it and not sit there at a two hour long meeting where nobody wants to put their head above the crowd. You know, everybody just kind of follows along. So that was my natural disposition was some kind of, um, an antagonistic relationship with that type of setting. But what I found is... And you were student body president. I was student body president, exactly. <laughs> Who knows? You know, I guess it was a challenge I needed to, I wanted to take on. But what I realized is I, I grew to have so much respect for the people in those positions and how amazing it is to have an institution that involves 5,000, 10,000 people, that affects 20,000 people, and how you have to have meetings, you have to have mm, organization, mm -hmm. you got to have rules and regulations that are essential to human existence and making these things work. And that balance between how do you still keep things efficient and functional and authentic, but at the same time manage 
10,000, 20,000 lives is a fascinating balance that I really... Were you able to find that balance? Yeah, I was. And, yeah, and, and it was great. And, and I really I got a lot of respect for you know these types of big institutions. In fact, uh, sorry to jump ahead, but at the hospital now, I'm the vice chief of staff of the, of the medical staff. And I'm going to be the chief of staff next year in January at our Cedar Sinai Marina Hospital. So I haven't, uh, so I'm still into it. Despite my, despite my reluctance to go to these big group meetings, I still keep going. So. Well, you're a natural leader, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you I, wouldn't be doing that. That's, that's true. I do. I, and I do enjoy it. And I, yeah. I do think that um, you tap into other people and you get on the same page, having people with the same goals and, and objectives and figuring out how to do it and make it in a very real way and productive way is fun. Even though, you know, my, my, one of my faults is just losing interest and being like, why am I sitting here for an hour at this meeting? Is this really the best use of my time? Or can I be go, can I go shoot a podcast right now? Yeah. You know, like, is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to the yeah. fact that when you finished your nine years at USC, you had an interesting twist. I've never heard a doctor say that they did their fellowship other than one place, because you did a traveling fellowship in Europe. Tell me about that. So mainly, so the first thing I did was a full year in England. So I, so I did a proper one-year fellowship in Nottingham, England, and with the, my main professor was John Webb, and I also had uh, Hussein Madian and Mike Grevin and Brian Freeman and some great surgeons. But And that was a fantastic experience. My wife and I, we didn't have kids yet, and she went with me, and we lived over there, and I got to see the national healthcare system mm-hmm. and, and how that yeah. worked. And there's pluses and minuses. I mean, let me just put a plug in. I think that medical care in America is the best in the world, period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the same time, you know, there's pluses and minuses. If we need a surgery or go to the hospital, we want it to be here. Yeah, and, uh, no doubt. And yes. you don't want to wait six months no. for leg pain no. going down your leg and everything else. But anyway, but there's great doctors over there, obviously, and great nurses and everything else. So I learned a lot over there. But And I was we were able to travel, talk about traveling the pound was really strong yeah. then, and we were able to travel on the weekends. You could fly for 50 bucks to Prague and all these other cities. And so we had a great, we had a wonderful Let's experience. Let's go dinner in Paris. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was almost that close. The, uh, but, and then, so afterwards, then I spent three months and, and we drove through Europe. And at that time, we visited all sorts of cities, but I spent two weeks at a time with different surgeons. So I got to go to uh, Germany with Rudy Bertignoli, who does artificial disc replacements. He was one of the designers of the cervical and lumbar motion preservation artificial disc. You know, instead of doing a fusion and stopping the motion, you put the prosthesis in there, preserves motion. So I got to be with him when he was first really designing these and implementing them. He was one of the pioneers for the artificial disc cervical and lumbar? Correct. Ah, And and still is. Nice. And, And a brilliant surgeon. Just a magnificent surgeon, and and then I also spent uh, time with Daniel Chopin, who's uh, a surgeon in uh, France. Beautiful uh, hospital right on the beach in France, and he's a deformity surgeon, scoliosis surgeries. And this guy was such an artist, where he basically would correct somebody's curved spine, but he wouldn't try and overcorrect it. Mm-hmm. He literally would just balance it. And he had the great finesse. It was, it, was, it was a true artistic endeavor where it wasn't just put the screws in and correct it with manual strength. And, you know, it was literally just leave somebody balanced. And it was such a beautiful thing to watch to see how he had a great feel for the spine and how you can incorporate that into doing surgery. So do you now do some scoliosis surgery? I do not. I don't do full thoracal lumbar thing. corrections, you know, T10 to the pelvis corrections. And the reason why is because I think if you're going to do scoliosis, big fusions, you know, which take six hours. to t- 10 hours, mm-hmm. there's a 30% reoperation rate uh, within two years. Uh, and screws think. break, bones break, 
everything can happen. And so I think if you do those surgeries, you should do one or two a week. That way you really know all the literature, all the new techniques, and you also have a feel like Daniel Chopin did about how much to correct this versus not overcorrect it. And so I, uh, so I said, I, what I do is I, I decided more to specialize in the minimally invasive surgeries, the, small, the, the non-operative care mm-hmm. with our app and the rehab program and the podcast, taking care of athletes. Like I said, I take care of the Dodgers and the Rams and the Clippers. And, you know, I'm on the sideline for games and I go to locker rooms and do microscopic minimally invasive surgeries on them. And then for most people with deformities, I see, can I do a minimally invasive surgery and just pick off one or two levels, treat their immediate problem and not fuse the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And if they need a fusion of the whole curve, I refer them to somebody I trust. And so ultimately what I realized is you got to kind of narrow down as to what is your forte? What are you best at? And and how do you want to live your life? And what are you going to focus on? And spine, although, you know, it's, it's just the spine, there's no hips and knees, no other joints involved. Spine alone is a huge field that you can't really do it all. You got to kind of focus in on what you want to what you want to specialize. And I also do injections. I do epidural injections. So I learned those when I was in England, so I still do those. And so mm-hmm. it's kind you know, it's kind of like I narrowed more on the the less invasive uh, type of techniques. Cuz when you first came here and joined your father, was there any question you were going to be coming back here or did you already know that? I pretty much knew that. Yeah. I, I knew about halfway through my residency that I wanted to do spine. And so each stage along the way, you know, I, you decided on orthopedics Mm -hmm. and then, and I loved orthopedics because it was so just kind of sport based, you know, people come in with a broken arm, you put some screws in, you fix it. They say, thank you. They go (laughs) go back to their life, instant gratification for both of us. And I love that functionality and the, and the surgeries are amazing. You know, learning how to do these surgeries and techniques is, is so much fun and such a great challenge that is so rewarding. But then spine, the intensity of spine is what I wanted. Because if I was doing hips and knees and joints, I'd get bored. If I was doing the same surgery every day, like a total hip, total knee, every, like 15 of them in a day, I'd be so bored out of my mind. And while it's an amazing surgery and it really helps people fundamentally, there's no question about that. It's not as intense as spine. Sp- spine is intense because first thing is you need to be an investigator. You need to understand what's causing the pain. You know, if you have an arthritic hip, it's easy. That's yeah. like a no-brainer. Yeah. Well, with spines, you've got five, you know, get so many discs and facet joints in the back and nerves coming out. What exactly is causing this person's pain? And with what degree of confidence do we know that? So first, you got to be in to examine the patient, talk to them, really understand their problem, do that investigative work. Then you've got to be into, okay, what's the smallest possible surgery I can do here if we're, we're going to operate? Yes. First of all, can we treat it non-surgically? Then can I do an epidural? Then what's the smallest surgery I can do and get away with it? So I really love that challenge. And even the intensity, you know, I mean, there's a certain percent of patients who are still going to have pain after spine surgery or have complications, spinal fluid leaks, infections, nerve. I've had surgeries. I've done a perfect surgery on somebody and they've woken up with weakness with with no explanation whatsoever, except that maybe there's an interruption of some of the blood supply or the nerve got inflamed. And usually it recovers. It'll recover on its own. But that's part of spine surgery that is pretty intense. A little unnerving when that happens. It's totally unnerving. I mean, it's totally unnerving. And you've got this other human being that you operated on. You know, I, they trusted me Mm -hmm. with their life Mm -hmm. and I did this surgery and they woke up with weakness and it is so challenging. And, And one of the greatest things I got from my dad is keeping 
in mind. The only thing that matters is you and that patient. And everything else can be a distraction, especially operating on professional athletes. Mm-hmm. When's, sure. their, when's their season going to start? What's their contract? What's the press saying? What's the, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And, and it can be very distracting and, and it can, you know, be confusing. But what's great about our job is your job is to focus on the patient and be their doctor and take care of them and figure out what's best for them. And so, you know, and that's a huge challenge. What a nice thing to have your dad right there to remind you of that all the time. Huge. (laughs) I mean, it's fantastic. It's like the greatest gift ever is that for 16 years we've worked together and we, and I do that for him too. You know, one of the greatest things about working with my dad is I know what I've gotten from him and how blessed I've been to being able to work with him. He's an amazingly generous man. He'll give me the tie off his shirt if if I just say I like it. I mean, he's just a great, he's a really great guy. And, and. But what I what was been great for me is realizing that over the past ten years, how much I've contributed back to him, and that by being in practice and learning the new techniques, using computer guidance mm-hmm. for put screws in, these minimally invasive surgeries we do, doing the injections, and even just emotional and physical support that we talk about cases. You know, having and we've got a partner named Dave Chang who's amazing too, and so the three of us and even our PA Sean's great. He's been with us for twelve years. Oh, but that's a nice thing to have it, in the team. It's great, but mm-hmm. especially my dad and I, and and with the high profile patients, to have somebody else who really understands. We don't have to explain much to each other. We both know mm-hmm. what's at stake, what's important, and being able to help each other say, okay, well, let's let's simplify this. Let's get back to the patient. What exactly is their complaint? Where's the pain? Let's re-examine them. You know, let's let's narrow things down, make it basic, go through the steps and figure out what the problem is and take care of the person. And ultimately, go back to the original thing about this win-win of our job. If we take care of the person, everything else will take care of itself. <laughs> and, you know, and so... Don't worry about the press conference yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just get this person better. Yeah. And, and, know, and know that they can trust you, that you care about them. Stick around for more of this interesting conversation with Dr. Robert Watkins IV. If you're in the market for a bike, you want to buy your bike from a shop that has great service. Bicycles need to be serviced and maintained on a regular basis for safety. You want a relationship you can count on with the shop where you buy your bike. Helen's cares as much about servicing your bike and keeping you safe as it does about the sale of a new bike. Their tune-up packages and excellent repair service will keep your bike in perfect working order. Go to HelenCycles.com. That's HelenCycles.com. We're back with Dr. Watkins. Now, I heard you say on one of your podcasts that between football, baseball, and basketball, that football players have more spine injuries. And I would choose that, too, if I was just guessing because yeah. of all the contact. But then baseball is second because of all the rotation. Yeah. And basketball, not so much. That's true. Now, first of all, it's a numbers game. There's more football players and and baseball 43 players. on the squad instead of 11, yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. So that alone is just a numbers game that, that I don't actually know injuries per you know, participant mm-hmm. and what those what mm-hmm. those numbers are. I should know that. In fact, they'll all inspire me. I'll go find out. <laughs> but basketball is mainly knees and ankles. You know, yeah. that they are, that's mainly, or their shoulders. Shoulder, yeah. and, and we've seen, you know, we took care of Dwight Howard. That, that was publicly released. And we certainly see basketball players, probably one or two a year for different things. But football's huge. I mean, the impact in football is big. And baseball, I'll tell you one of the biggest things I learned about baseball and the more respect I've grown to have for baseball players is the 162 games oh, playing every month after month after month night and yeah. through the the dog days of summer and stuff like that and it's not just physical it's also energetically and emotional imagine being with the same group of people 
all day, every traveling, day. Traveling, Traveling, yeah, yeah <laughs> staying in weird hotels, being sleep deprived, being stressed, competing for jobs with each other. Yeah. You know, and, and it kind of gets undervalued because we think, oh, they're athletes, they get paid millions of dollars, they should just suck it up and make the most of it. But they're still human beings. Yes. And it, they, the they, same needs. The same needs and the mm-hmm. same interactions that happen with any... You go on a family trip for greater than a week, you all start to rip each other's throats out, you know? <laughs> well, that's what happens with them. But it goes on for five months or six months, yeah. how long is baseball season? And so the injuries, too, this wear and tear, this chronic wear and tear that happens to the bodies. And, and they all have... By the end of the season, they all have injuries. They all have multiple body parts that aren't 100%. And how you play through that and adapt through it, I think it's the greatest appreciation I've gotten for baseball, which I did not have just as a fan is really the the grind. And and what's cool about every sport is every sport, the games last just long enough for what humans can tolerate. And the seasons do too, you know, before they need an offseason. I've never heard anybody say that before. It's funny. You know, and you, every sport, yeah. you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's about all they yeah. could do. Yeah. And, and they're all yeah. exhausted at the end. And, and uh, so I think I've, I've grown to respect every sport. It has its own challenges in its own way and own injuries for that matter. Well, I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you worked on many female athletes? Yes. The um, basketball uh, for the USC, uh, USC rowing crew is huge. There are, we see a lot of uh, crew injuries because of all that torque on people's spines. All that leaning forward All that and leaning forward back, and cranking yeah. back. Uh-huh. The, the torque on the spines is really harsh. Gymnastics, obviously. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of uh, gymnasts between the age of 14 to 19, that overuse for stress fractures, repetitive injuries in the spine. Um, Do they come here to you? Or are you yeah. going to the, their high school athletes? Correct. High club, school athletes. Club athletes. Yeah. You know, we're we're technically an adult practice mm-hmm. and the hospital where we work is an adult hospital. It's not a pe- we're not pediatrics. At the same time, stress fractures are what we treat because mm-hmm. they happen in, in athletes and we're one of the specialists. And 95 percent or 98 percent of them we treat non-operatively. Mm-hmm. So we have the whole rehab program to treat the stress fractures. We see more than probably anybody in the country. And so I treat those and, and a disc herniation in somebody who's got a, an athletic type of disc herniation, if they're 16, 17 years, I will operate on them if they need it. And so the, the pathology we see in teenagers fits with what we treat, with what 25-year-olds get. I gotcha. So I will treat those. But ultimately, yeah. if somebody's a, more has a pediatric problem, I'll refer them to uh, Dave Skaggs at Children's Hospital. is a great. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, so. Now, you're one of the few doctors that I know of in L.A. who has a podcast. What triggered that? Uh, so my dad and I developed the app. So this rehab program of back strengthening exercises, which my dad with Celeste Randall and a lot of great physical therapists probably 30 years ago developed this. And it's, it's really basic exercises. You know, dead mm-hmm. bug, partial sit-up, bridging prone. Every physical therapist knows the exercises. But one of the great things they did is they just quantified it. They made mm-hmm. it one to five, you know, which is what orthopedists do. Make them into categories so that one is the easiest, five is the hardest. And so... And that quantitative progression helps us know how strong is their core, so how much are they protecting their spine, therefore what activities can they more safely do. So when people get to a level two, I let them do non-impact cardio, elliptical, swim, bike. When they get to level three, it's more rotational. Mm -hmm. If they're an athlete, they can start to throw, they can start to shoot, they can start to skate. When they get to level four, they can basically lift weights and practice with their team. They can't have impact till level five, I'm guessing. Well, yeah, football impact. Yeah. Like collision, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. level five. Mm-hmm. Really back to sport. But five is hardcore. You know, that's like a 15-minute straight dead bug. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know who can do that. <laughs> the, uh, but we had to set the bar high. You know, yeah, we got, we got yeah, some yeah. people. Now, this is your Back Doctor app. Yeah, so I'm this sorry. Is the app. Yeah, exactly. So the app. But people can get that at the App Store called Back Doctor. That's correct. Yeah. It's called Back Doctor. It's in the App Store, the Google Play Store. It's free. We've had about 75,000 downloads of it in two years, which is so awesome. I don't know who these people are. We don't collect any data. There's no credit card. There's no, it's just free. We give it away for free and it's really awesome. Um, and I've had some great stories about people I've never even met who then come in and they meet me and they go, I've got your app. Thank you for giving this to us and yeah, sharing. And yeah, all. Yeah. So we were going to make a DVD, but halfway through the process, I was like, I don't own a DVD player no, anymore. No, people don't anymore. I got to make an app. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what apps are necessarily. I got to make an app. So that was about two and a half years ago that I said, okay. <laughs> so we made it into an app and then I just started getting into that realm of, distributing it on Facebook. I got a Facebook account. I wasn't even on Facebook. So I got a Facebook and Instagram account. I started sharing it, you know, and I just, the power of being able to create something and then with a click of a button, you can share it with people. In the world, all then, over the world. And they can share it with their friends mm -hmm. and that this ripple effect of how you can just have an impact on people in, in a positive way. And for me, you know, once you put the investment in, after that, it's all free. And there's no barriers. It's just so cool yeah. and awesome that somehow I learned about podcasts. I think I listened to a podcast. In fact, Tony Robbins interviewing Deepak Chopra uh, cool. is the coolest interview. It's kind of a philosophical, uh -huh. meditative, and really cool interview. And I think that might have kind of inspired me. So I YouTubed. Well, how do you make a podcast? I watched a couple of videos, figured it out, and then I do it all myself. I got the, I do it on my computer. I cut and paste a little intro music, <laughs> and I probably, you know, publish them right. And, it, and it's, it's amazing. And again, it kind of comes down to that, like realizing. A big thing I realized is, I have information. I know things that that I can share with people that cost me nothing to share. That's right. And it's so invaluable. I, and part of it is I met with a couple patients who were really smart professionals in their own realm, attorneys, you know, um, business people, really smart people. And they're trying to make a decision on their back. They're trying to decide, should they have surgery or not? Should they have a fusion, an artificial disc, a foramenotomy? All these complicated questions. They can Lazy. listen to your podcast about the difference between the fusion and the artificial exactly. disc. I loved that. All the details that were in there gave such clarity. Thank you. Yeah. And, and that's what I realized is these people are trying to make a decision on their life and they're so ill-equipped. They, they'll never be able to make a proper decision because they're not going to be educated enough to know what they should even be thinking about. Yeah, yeah. And but, but if I turn on a microphone and talk for 30 minutes, they can know almost as much as I do. And they can listen to it five times. And then, and also I'll tell you one funny story about that. So then I had a, I created this one. I had a patient come back to me, older woman. She was probably about 80. And she came back and I said, we're going to do this surgery, this fusion from the side, you know, stuff like that. She came back afterwards and she goes, now you're going to go, from the side instead of the front, but you're not going to get quite as much lordosis. Do you think we should go from the front, you know? And it was one of those moments where I went, oh, my God, did I create a monster here? Like Educated patients every, ask educated questions. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it was one of those moments I had to take a step back and go, look, this is such a better question than what I usually have to uh -huh. answer. We're having a real discussion yeah, here now. Yeah. And so it, maybe it may it take you a little extra time because now we're on a real high level. But how great is that? that we're, I mean, this is like a discussion between two spine surgeons. And we're having this, I'm having this discussion. It's wonderful. An 80-year-old yeah, cool. woman being able to ask you an educated patient question. I love <laughs> right. it. Now, you, one of the things that you talked about that I heard in the conversation with your dad in one of your podcasts, he was talking about the loss of function can lead to depression. Yeah. And... You were a water polo player. You know yeah. how valuable being in the water is. So yeah. I see that every day when people go, oh, wow, look what I can do. Just that light at the end of the tunnel you guys were talking about, yeah. being able to move, be yeah. able to be in space. There's no gravity. Yeah, it's huge. 
You know, the I mean, gravity is the bane of our existence mm-hmm. of humans. And mm-hmm. uh, you saw how many people I saw two people a day that said if they hang upside down, their pain goes away. They stand. And I said, yeah, the problem is you stand up again and gravity reexists and your pain comes right back. And the pool is amazing for that. The uh, And swimming. I actually swim in my pool in my backyard now. I wear a mask and a snorkel. Good. That's so, smart. So I don't have to turn my head. So You'll I see that a... in my book. We oh, were yeah? doing cool. that 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't have to turn my head. And then I have a belt and a bungee cord and I clip into place. You know, it cost me 30 bucks on Amazon. I clip into place. So it's like a treadmill. I can just swim in place. Yes. And don't have to do the flip turns. And uh, And so being in the water, you know, a big part, two things. One is diversifying your aerobic activity. Mm-hmm. The big One of the biggest limitations of most people is people say, I'm a runner. I got to be able to run. And it's like, no, you're a 45-year-old woman with back pain. You're not a marathon runner. Although you can yeah. run in deep water and not have any impact. Exactly. Learn to love that. <laughs> and, and, you know, a big part is being flexible, being desperate, being creative, and being committed to the cause. Yeah. Like, my goal is to work out every day if I can. Yes. And it usually ends up four to five days a week. And if that means... I'm tired and I put on a YouTube video of some Tai Chi and I do some Tai Chi or I get in my pool and I just move around and kind of run in place in my pool. At least I'm doing something. And water's amazing for that, taking away the effect of gravity and moving your joints. And like you were alluding to is move your body, circulate your blood, which releases endorphins so you feel better, washes out lactic acid. It'll improve your mood. It'll decrease your depression. You'll be happier because you've done something. You move your body, and water's great for that. So I'm a huge fan of exactly what you're talking about. Everybody in the locker room says, oh, I always feel so great when I get out of the water. Yeah, right, exactly. We all agree on that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to go through your experiences so far and look to the future now. What do you see coming in new technology or new procedures in the spine? I'm always thinking about that. You know, I mean, I have loved my past couple years specifically of, of, the, of the technology of information with, my, with our app and then the podcast have been great. And I'm starting to do Facebook Lives, which are really fun, interviewing people. And one of my funnest things now is I interview people from all over Los Angeles who are doing new techniques like stem cell injections. Mm-hmm. Who are these people charging five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 a pop? Well, where's the legitimacy? What's going on? And I, have, and I talk, come talk to them. In a very open way, like tell me what makes sense, what doesn't. And so part of that is is my search for information right. as to what I think is best for patients. I just do it live. I invite the person, <laughs> talk about it, and see what people think, the, uh, which is really fun. You like to walk that yeah, that line. wire. It is, it is a fine line. There's no question about that. The, uh, and uh, and But the other part is, so as far as what I think, one, from a biologic perspective, what are some of the biologic solutions mm-hmm. like stem cell injections? As of right now... There are no stem cell PRP biologic regenokine injection in the spine that makes any sense from a regenerative perspective today. And what I mean is the the shots may decrease pain and inflammation. They may be an anti-inflammatory, so they may help with pain, which is good but they don't necessarily regenerate the disc. Right. You know, that's a whole nother That's the holy grail in spine surgery. Exactly. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. that's Mm anti-aging. That is the fountain of Mm -hmm. youth. Mm -hmm. And so we'll get there. And I do think, and I think stem cells will probably be a part of it, but we are probably at least 10 to 20 years away just because the science is so complex. Whatever Mm -hmm. you inject in the disc dies. It's The disc is acidic. It has no blood supply. It has no oxygen supply. Whatever you inject in there probably dies within a day or two, maybe a week. 
So what's going to regenerate and make the whole thing live? Put a little and, robot in there to get, supply it with some <laughs> yeah, oxygen. Exactly. And Let's some, do it. Let's yeah. patent that. That's, that's, <laughs> the, uh, and so so I do think it's part of the future, and, and I do injections. And so that's part of one of my main things right now is trying to find out exactly what biologic type of injection I think is the best to do. And, I, and probably in the next three to four months, I will start doing something that I think is safe and has real plausibility and effectiveness and that I think is cost-worthy. Mm-hmm. Like if, if the, your insurance company approves a cortisone shot for free, well, you're going to have to pay cash for this. How much is it worth? If it's 500 bucks, it may be worth it. If it's five grand, well, we got to fight figure out if it's worth it for most mm-hmm. people. Yes. You know, And, and right. so that's, that's, that's one thing. Number two is uh, endoscopic. Right now, most of our surgeries, we use a microscope, mm-hmm. and which is very minimally invasive. You know, the, the amount of trauma to the muscle is very minimal, and it's extremely safe. Because one of the big things is if you're going to do surgery on the spine and remove the pathology, you got to make sure to not injure the nerve. You got to be able to see the nerve. You got to be able to get around the nerve, take out the problem, and don't disturb the nerve. And the other healthy tissue. Right. And and but mm-hmm. a big part is, you know, if your incision it needs to be a little bit bigger in order to not hurt the nerve, well, that's like twenty to one of importance mm. compared to how you know so, like a one inch amount of muscle. You know, so it's a balance between. Yeah. Don't just try and do everything so minimally invasive that it's good for marketing and it sounds better and you get more patients. Make sure you're doing it effective and safe. Yeah. Protect the nerve and treat the pathology. Make sure you get enough out. So, so some of these endoscopes, you go in, well, you don't necessarily open everything up and see as much. So maybe it's less invasive and it treats the immediate problem, but is it going to last as long? And are you treating enough of the stenosis and the, and the bone spurs? And these other issues where it's this real balance. And so right now, our microscopic surgeries are great. And our results in professional athletes are amazing. Like a a microscopic surgery in the lumbar spine, we have an 89% return to their professional sport. Goodness. Which is great. Yes. I mean, that's, you know, and so we still want to get better. I'd love to make it 95, (laughs) you know, but it's, and so, so the endoscopic surgery, um, um, integrating that with computer guided surgery is what I'm really excited about. Because the endoscopic surgery, you're limited in knowing where you are and how much you can see. So having a computer help navigate you to show you three-dimensionally where you are and the merging of the two of those, I think, really has the potential to be a groundbreaker for less invasive for the muscles, but at the same time, being able to see everything and treat the pathology effectively and safely. And it's coming. And it, and it may be another six to 12 months, and it's going to be it's going to be an evolution. You know, the first one that comes out, there's one that, that I'm aware of that's being released in January that I'm pretty excited about, FDA clearance in January. But it'll probably be the first version. So, it you know, it usually takes and uh, uh, tweaks to it to really make it the most effective. So I'm really excited about that because the computer-guided surgery, we've been doing for 15 years. So every screw we put in the human body, every pedicle screw and every um, screw for like a PARS repair, for stress fractures repairs, we put in with this computer-guided system. And some of the incisions, we operated on this professional baseball player the other day. We had three stab incisions that were like less than a centimeter big and put in two screws across the fractures. I mean, it was so minimally invasive. It was crazy. Because we don't have to, the computer knew exactly where to go. The computer shows yeah. me the whole spine. I don't have to expose anything. Yeah. I don't have to you know, yeah. literally look up a computer screen to put it in. It's fantastic. So merge, and we, but we've used that for 15 years. So when you talk about advances, 
I mean, we've had that for 15 years and it's been amazing. So we can put in screws into the spine so safely. It's great. So merging the endoscopic part with the nap computer navigation, I'm really excited about it because I think it, it can take us to the next level in some of these microscopic surgeries we do in the athletes and, and in everybody. It's the same surgery in everybody. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough. This is what I get to learn about the cutting edge of surgery when I talk with a doctor. So yeah. thank you for being here at Meet the Doctors. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to spine surgeon Dr. Robert Watkins IV of the Marina Spine Center. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode as we speak with the brightest minds in medicine, research, surgery, and much, much more. I'm Linda Huey. You can tweet to me on Twitter at Linda Huey. That's L-Y-N-D-A-H-U-E-Y. Say hi or tell me who you'd like to hear on Meet the Doctors. Thanks to production assistant James Cowan and to Tom Struther for audio post-production.